you almost take it for granted it'll take months, probably years, to get through a background investigation for serving in government. People in the national security and defense apparatus want to cut that down to weeks, at least for most applicants. The White House has also set ambitious new timelines for personnel vetting. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. Four years ago, at the height of the background investigation's backlog, it was taking the government more than 200 days on average to process a secret-level clearance. For top-secret clearance applications, more than 400 days. The new goals for clearing people applying to government positions? 25 days for a public trust position, 40 days for secret-level security clearance and high-risk public trust positions, and 75 days for top-secret clearance. As Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner puts it, This would be wild. 25, 40, and 75 days is the three categories. You get there, you'll never get any grief from me because it's so much shorter. Warner was speaking to Biden administration officials after they shared those new goals at a hearing last week on personnel vetting. The new targets are part of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative that has already overhauled many aspects of the government's vetting processes. The Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency has done away with the investigation's backlog and processing times are down sharply. Continuous vetting has replaced periodic reinvestigations for most people. But it still takes months for many initial applicants to be cleared, especially in the intelligence community. Lawmakers are concerned agencies and contractors are missing out on talented people who won't wait around for the lengthy vetting process. Senate Intelligence Committee Ranking Member Marco Rubio. Who can sit around for two or three years to wait to be hired, especially when we're competing with the private sector for some of this talent. Where I'm most interested in learning is how do we balance the need to bring in people you can trust and and understand who they are with the desire to do it quickly enough so that this is a viable option for people that want to come work here. And The latest government-wide numbers from the fourth quarter of fiscal 2022 show it took an average of 76 days to process an initial secret-level clearance application. For top-secret clearances, it took an average of 127 days. And the new goals are an even bigger stretch, considering agencies only track the fastest 90% of cases today. Jason Miller, the Deputy Director for Management at the White House Office of Management and Budget, says OMB is going to start measuring 100% of cases, even the worst outliers. The current system only measures the 90% fastest, so we have a huge tail that we're not even measuring. We're trying to measure everything so we can manage it and make sure that we're really driving transformative impact. The ambitious new timelines also wouldn't apply to most of the intelligence community. While DCSA handles clearance cases for 95% of government, intelligence agencies handle their own clearance investigations. They often have additional requirements, like a polygraph exam, that add even more time to the overall process. As part of the Fiscal 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, lawmakers directed intelligence agencies to set a goal of onboarding personnel in 180 days. Deputy Director of National Intelligence Stacey Dixon. Our goal is to try to come as close to that as possible, given that we have additional steps required to get to the extra level of security clearance, as well as the polygraphs and the medical in some cases. Lawmakers also remain frustrated with reciprocity, which refers to the process for individuals who are already cleared to have their clearance accepted by another agency. Delays in granting reciprocity have made it harder for individuals to move in between positions in government and industry. Here's Maine Independent Angus King. If they have a top-secret clearance at the Department of Defense, why isn't that good enough for the CIA? Contractors for the intelligence community have pressed agencies to speed up reciprocity decisions. 
Dixon says agencies can grant clearance reciprocity for contractors in 90% of cases within five days. But 10% of cases present a challenge, she added, where one agency may require additional processes before granting access to a cleared individual. But Warner says it's oftentimes months for employees and contractors to move from one cleared intelligence position to another. My view is, belief is, we have a complete mishmash. And the lack of reciprocity, or even the kind of not knowing for sure if you're at DHS and you want to go to DOE and then you want to go to NRO, we've got a lot of work to do in this space. We can do this, we can protect the enterprise and we can be much more efficient. Lawmakers also wondered whether the Defense Department and intelligence community could look to alternatives to the polygraph examination. A report published last year by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance found it can take up to 18 months to obtain a polygraph due to a shortage of examiners. Ronald Moultrie, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, says DOD isn't planning to phase out the polygraph. But its National Center for Credibility Assessment is studying other options. It is the tool, the gold standard that we have right now. We have had a discussion within the Department of Defense as to whether or not new technologies might be augmentative to polygraphs. Is there something out there that would allow us to monitor some of the same things that a polygraph monitors? But those are in the very early stages of discussion. But we believe that looking at technology and being able to enhance any process is the way that we ought to go. Despite lingering questions about polygraphs, reciprocity delays, and other issues, senators on the Intelligence Committee applauded officials for the progress they've made in reducing personnel vetting timelines across government and for setting the ambitious new goals. But Warner says it's an issue that will continue to require high-level focus and attention, particularly in the intelligence community. We're losing great personnel because they just can't wait. Maybe I'm a little obsessed about this, but I think it's going to take a little bit of relentless obsession because it's easier to stick with the status quo. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, 
And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look in Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look in Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's hand. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming 
after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.